Can you? That's a good question. Uh, it really is, and uh, I've thought about it many times. I'd like to say I I, I was prescient. Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 59, recorded on December 2nd, 2021. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we continue part two of our conversation with father and son, Otto and Eric Niebler. If you haven't listened to episode one, I highly recommend listening to that one first. I mentioned that the the Wall Street area was going through some fairly heavy trauma during the late 60s. I don't know if you're familiar with that part of history of Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street has a tradition of being notoriously old school and reluctant to change. And uh, but uh, what was happening is that the uh, the stock market was growing exponentially. And between uh, '65 and '68, uh, the the volume of transactions on on the exchange itself went from five million to twelve million within three years, which always destroyed Wall Street. They basically, uh, whatever transaction occurred, a stock was traded. They would manually transfer the stock into the owner's name. That's a, it was a very manual process. It was, it was on paper. You get a certificate, in effect. That destroyed three or four different brokerage firms. They couldn't keep up with it, and the SEC shut them down. Uh, I think the most notorious was Hayden Stone Brokerage. They literally shut down uh, that brokerage firm. And then they introduced something called Central Certificate Service, where they basically had a banking service introduced, but instead of money, they would have certificates in accounts. And to do the trading, they would actually do accounting uh, postings where they transfer one into the other without any paper transfer. And that saved Wall Street's bacon for the most part. But that all required computers. Uh, so they all had to get on board very quickly and get all their back office operation translated into an automated system, but not without a lot of collateral damage. They lost about six to 10 brokerage firms that couldn't handle it. And they could not find anybody or couldn't find the staffing, uh, the technology at that time. And if you were anything close to a computer, they would gobble you up and give you anything you wanted in terms of salary. If you could spell the word computer, you're hired. And that's basically <laughs> what it was. And they had headhunters all over the place trying to get uh, technology staff from one brokerage firm to the other brokerage firm. Uh, and it was there was piracy on, on Wall Street just to get the right people. But uh, that's basically how traumatic it was during the late 60s. Wow. That's super, yeah, it's super interesting to hear because at, at one point in my career, I wanted to be like a quant and wanted to work on Wall Street. So I've read a ton of books about, you know, uh, the 90s until like the early 2000s. But like, it's all, it, it was, it's, you know, it's a completely different world. Like to hear the early days of be having to actually physically transfer, oh, I own this stock and, and it's a certificate. And that was a, a trading house. I like, couldn't keep up with that. And then they would go under like versus now. I mean, it's basically algorithms and you know, the, the human in the loop is, is very minimal. It's like, you know, a, a trader staring at 12 screens, just monitoring what a bunch of algorithm, you know, proprietary algorithms they're executing. And it's hard to even imagine like that time where, you know, computers aren't even 
in, in that system, like that Wall Street. It's, it's amazing. Once they learned what computers could do, Wall Street really grabbed the bit and ran with it. Uh, they basically uh, uh, were uh, totally automated within three or four years. And, but they began to realize the other potential, other than become, being more efficient, they also said that they could do a lot more in terms of scientific investing uh, with the computers, doing the analysis rather than having people. So the automation process went very quickly once they realized the upside potential of computers. But uh, it's an industry, it's an interesting f- uh, evolution on Wall Street because Wall Street prior to had uh, a very heavy reluctance to automate anything. Another interesting story about Wall Street is uh, automating the specialist. The specialist on the floor of the exchange is a very unique individual. He basically uh, buys when everybody's selling and sells when everybody's buying. His primary purpose is to stabilize the market so it doesn't go crazy. That's that's a unique feature of the York Stock Exchange. But working with them personally, they're the biggest crooks on Wall Street. They basically are responsible for maybe a half a dozen stocks. And they basically have to stabilize the stocks. But they trade on inside information very easily because they they know uh, what is going up and what's going down before anybody knows about it. And they all have uh, proxy accounts that they can use very, very easily. And the SEC is always on top of them. Uh, One of the projects I was assigned is automating the specialist book. The book is where you post your trade. If you're a broker, you would uh, approach a specialist and say, when this stock hits this price, sell or buy this, this stock for, it, for, the, for me. And he keeps that in the book. And it's a manual book. So, yeah, he, but uh, we wanted to help him. And I was a very naive manager at the time. And I went down to the specialist and said, we're going to do a great thing for you. We're going to automate your book. And I... The words I got back were not very pleasant to the, to the effect is like hell you will. And they didn't want any part of it because they feel that having the footprints of what they do available to the SEC is comparable to suicide. So they didn't want any part of they didn't want any part of automation whatsoever. They did not want Big Brother looking over their shoulder at all. So but the, that type of automation was strictly unwanted. By, by the floor of the exchange. So did you end well, up being successful SEC or, like, or what happened? At some point, said, thou shalt automate that book. And that was one of my projects as well. We automated the specialist book. And uh, uh, it turned out to be a blessing because it, it freed up the, the, the specialist, it made him a little bit more honest, but it also freed him up and made him a little more efficient. So he was able to do more work and get more money out. So it worked out well for the expulsions. It was not without a fight, though, I'll tell you. It's, it's interesting that, to hear that the thing that really drove the automation was that, that increase in volume, that, it, that the volume reached a point where, it, where there, was no other, there was no other alternative. No, that was, that was a condition of, of the economy at the time. The automation didn't have much to do with it. Automation basically alleviated the, uh, the, the stress of the added volume. And uh, they looked, they, they, it was a lifesaver for Wall Street. It really was. Uh, but it did not generate that traffic. It was other things that caused that traffic. 
So not not to, not to switch topics, but a couple times earlier you said you know referring to tech of, and how far things have come. And if if I recall correctly, you said in in fifty six uh, when you saw the computer, like you sort of knew it was going to be a big deal, in spite of you know your your parents or your dad being like, come on, you gotta you should reconsider staring down people's throats and and be a dentist. And I'm I'm, I'm not sure what the equivalent is today. If it's you know seeing something that how how do you know it's going to have the impact it does so do you know what led you to think that computers were going to have like because my guess is there was a bunch of folks that saw computers and were like okay like i'm sure this will be neat but like now they're they're everywhere what made you think that it it was going to be it was going to be this game-changing thing or do you know can you that's a good question Uh, it really is and uh, i've thought about it many times I'd like to say I, I, I was prescient about what's happening to computers, but I wasn't. Uh, it was a type of thing that I thoroughly enjoyed doing. Uh, I looked at it as a game, actually. And I said, uh, would people be willing to pay me money to do something that I enjoy so much? And I, I said, well, I don't know if they will, but I'll, I'd like to find out. And I think that's what drove me, not the vision of tomorrow and what role it plays, um, GE had a lot to do with uh, bringing the computer age to, into being. I don't know if you remember the 66 Wells, Wells Fair. They had a beautiful exhibit about uh, technology of tomorrow. And that basically brought home the message of what really could happen with, with technology. I had the vision a lot before that. Not the vision. I had the urge to be part of it well before that. But I think that type of mentality what really brought uh, people in, really into interest and in, in look, looking at it as a career, and that this there is a tremendous potential. And I think one of the big one of the big companies like GE and others started talking about what could be, possibly happen. You know, if you really applied your imagination to it, what could possibly happen with a computer? It really it really bothered me mind. What were some some of the things that they showed at the 66 World Fair? It wasn't just computers. It was just the uh, different types of uh, transportation, different types of uh, automation of the home. It was different types of uh, communication. Uh, I can't be more specific than that, but they give you examples of all of it, what it would look like in uh, tomorrow's land. It's like they had, a, I think, an actual exhibit called Tomorrowland, and uh, it showed you a whole bunch of things. Mostly around the home, around the transportation, around industry. Uh, uh, at that time, Dick Tracy's talking watch was considered leading edge technology. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to look up when when the last actual because I don't think world fairs were a thing. Um, no, no. when I not I, them in a while. <laughs> yeah. So when was the last world uh, world fair? Well, while, while you're looking that up. Um, we should ask Eric about his time as a as a freelancer because I think that's one of the more one of the more interesting periods oh, yeah. of Eric's career. And this ties in with our other guest, uh, Dave Abrahams, does it not? Yeah. yeah yes, yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah actually, uh, yeah. So, um, right, right, right. So, so I was I was working at uh, at Microsoft, and I started getting involved in uh, in Boost a little bit, um, and I. I I think I went to some sort of a, a con. No, maybe maybe I hadn't been involved in Boost just yet, but I went to a conference 
And at a conference, I, I met Dave Abrahams. And I remember sitting um, at a bar with Dave, just, um, you know, chatting over a beer. And, you know, we, we just seemed um, to be two peas in a pod. And we, we, we've looked at, at software and, and the current challenges in the software industry the same way. Um, and I'm like, man, this is a great guy. He's doing interesting things. Um, and I went back to Microsoft and I was thinking about it. And, and you know, at this time, Dave was, Dave was already uh, independent and he had uh, his um, Boost Consulting uh, business. Uh, it was called Boost Consulting then. Um, it wasn't Boost Pro yet. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and I thought, you know, that'd be a great life, you know, and I, I kind of have this dream of travel and, and, you know, it, it would be nice to be, to be free in order to, to travel and, and work remotely. Um, uh, this was a long time ago. This was uh, uh, like, this was the 2001, maybe. Um, and so I shot Dave an email uh, and I was like, Hey, you know, uh, if uh, if you need another consultant, let me know. I'm not particularly attached to my job here at Microsoft. Um, and I thought nothing of it. And you know, several months later, uh, I got an email back from from Dave. He's like, "Are you still interested in being a consultant?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" Um, I quit Microsoft like post haste uh, and started working with Dave, and it was fantastic. Um, you know, because uh, I was I was. Um, uh, a nobody, right? I couldn't have um, started a consulting business on my own. I, I didn't have clients. I didn't have any sort of reputation in the industry or anything at all. So, so I got to ride Dave's coattails a bit, um, and and you know he sent me work. I I worked away. Uh, people seemed happy with the work. I enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of it was um, either um, uh, proprietary development for companies or. Uh, open source development that was sponsored by various companies that wanted a lot various libraries built. Um, a couple of the boost libraries uh, are, are ones that I built uh, while I was consulting um, with Dave. <clears throat> and I got very active in, um, uh, in the committee. I got very active in boost.org um, uh, and on, on the, on the mailing lists and, you know, learned all sorts of stuff about library development from all sorts of smart people. Um, it was, it was a great time. Uh, you know, I, I, I got a chance to learn a ton of stuff and, and, and rub elbows with a lot of um, really great people. Uh, and, and so that, um, that was a fine time for me. And then eventually I did make myself location independent, um, not right away. Um, and so I, uh, I worked, I did a lot of that work while I was um, kind of knocking about, um, you know, I was either uh, in, in Australia or in Thailand or in Vietnam or New Zealand or anywhere in the U.S. or Canada or, you know, I just kind of knocked around and would um, set up shop for uh, three, four months uh, and then, um, you know, move wherever I struck my fancy and, and do it over again. And I did that for several years. Um, while consulting. That was, that was great. Um, eventually, uh, you know, Dave got sick of doing, um, uh, you know, running a business and got a good offer, like an offer he couldn't refuse, they, you know, so to speak, from, from Apple um, to do, um, to work on Swift, right? And to be the, the person steering the, the development of the standard library for, for the Swift programming language. 
and so Dave, um, you know, decided to, to snatch that opportunity. Um, I would have too, I suppose. And, um, uh, and that kind of left me high and dry. I was like, well, I was subcontracting to this guy and now he's gone and got himself like a, a regular nine to five. What the hell do I do? Um, so I decided oh, I'll, 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 I'll give it a go as a, as an independent consultant now, rather than a subcontractor. Um, and I did that for quite a while and that worked out pretty well for me. Um, I enjoyed that a lot. You know, a lot, a lot of the clients that, um, that Dave had had, um, I inherited. So that was great. That made it real easy for me. Um, uh, and at that point, I had a bunch of libraries and boost. I'd written some articles. Some people knew, you know, oh, okay, this guy's got a bit of a reputation as a C++ programmer, you know, hire this guy. And, uh, and that, was, that was all wonderful. It was terrific. Uh, uh, I loved it. Um, I had a, um, a really brief stint uh, when I came back from my travels um, at a, uh, a startup called Intentional Software, um, which is a, a programming uh they, it was started by Charles Simonyi, which, um, you know, if, if folks don't know Charles Simonyi, he is um, one of this Microsoft ultra, ultra rich people. He, he wrote Excel. Uh, I think he wrote Word. Um, and so he started this company about, um, you know, he, he wanted to popularize uh, what, what he was ter- calling intentional programming, which um, is, uh, is basically the idea of like, you know, uh, Domain-specific languages, um, you know, uh, building a little workbench um, uh, on which you can develop pro- uh, domain-specific languages to target various um, specific applications, um, which uh, is kind of a cool idea. Um, but uh, you know, when 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 you have as much money as Charles Simonyi does, um, then there is no real pressure to ever ship a product. Um, and so they just kind of like spun their wheels endlessly, rewriting the, uh, the engine. And, you know, after, after I think five months, I lasted five months there. After that, I was like, okay, that's, this is crazy. Um, I actually, <laughs> I actually want to deliver value. Um, so, so I quit that and, um, and, and then, then I went, uh, back to consulting and, uh, eventually, uh, got myself, um, you know, a family and decided I needed a steady job. So I went and worked at Facebook and, you know, that's, that's how I ended up there. That's, uh, that's my story. Um, yeah, um, would love to consult again. That would be, that was a, a great, great time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, you know, working at a company like NVIDIA has its, um, has its perks. You know, I get to work, uh, do bigger things um, because there's, um, there's, there's more will. Uh, there's more learn, long-term vision. There's more funding. Um, and, and more resources. There's more smart people that I get to interact with. Um, and so, uh, you know, like the work that I'm doing right now, for instance, like trying to um, uh, trying to give C++ um, an async programming model. Um, that's work that I, you know, I would have to either not do that or do it pro bono in my spare time um, if, if I were still consulting. Like nobody would be paying me to do that. Um, so I consider myself actually really lucky right now to be um, not a consultant and, and working at a company like NVIDIA. It's interesting. It, it seems to, I, you know, I sort of, I entered the C++ world in about 2010, 2011. And at that time, it seemed to me like there were a lot more people 
who were freelancers um, who were doing consulting. And over the course of the last 10 years, um, it seems like pretty much all of the people who were, who were freelancers have been gobbled up by some company. And it seems like it's sort of like it's, it's, a, it's this lost era where we had a lot of, you know, that, that 2000 to 2010 era of boost development. And we had a lot of folks that were, um, you know, working as freelancers, as consultants and, uh, or, at, you know, small companies. And I'm, I'm sure that, I'm sure that there is still plenty of freelancers out there, but it seems like, it seems like that was in some ways a different time. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's, if that's, that, that's my perception also, but I, I'm not sure if it's an accurate perception. I have no way of, of actually figuring out whether there are fewer consultants now than there were then. Um, it, it could also be, um, you know, uh, you know, this is like a station in life. Um, you know, when, when you're in your twenties and you don't have any responsibilities, um, you know, the idea of becoming a freelance consultant is really appealing. Uh, it doesn't matter if your income stream dries up, um, for a certain amount of time. Um, but, um, you know, and then, and you could, it's all right if you have to pay for your own insurance, um, health insurance, if you're, if you're in the U S and you have to do such things, um, then, um, that's fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, as, as people get older, they, they end up getting more responsibilities, families, house, that sort of thing. And, and then the idea of having an uneven or uncertain income stream is, is far less appealing. Yeah. You know, it, it's sort of, that, that makes me think of another question, which is at, at what point did, um, did, you know, software engineering today, being a software engineer is, you know, considered like a really good job. It's a really high paying job. I, like, was that, that couldn't have always been the case. You know, at, at what point did it go from being, you know, a pretty good white collar job to being one of the, one of the jobs that a lot of people aspire to because it's so highly valued and, uh, you know, well compensated? I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't the case when I graduated college. Um, I remember my, my starting salary at Microsoft was about 40K, um, which, you know, is, is not that much, uh, yeah. you know, um, and it wasn't even all that much at the time. Um, I mean, it was okay at the time, but it wasn't like, wow. Uh, so, so I think what, what happened was um, the, um, the internet i think yeah. i think i think the internet and like the first bubble um and all of these uh, people that suddenly made themselves um super rich in the bay area um from the first bubble um all of a sudden um tech stock um became a hot commodity um people can make a lot of money off of it and and that seems to have driven a lot of the um um software economy um and, uh, and, and yeah, so now, now programmers, um, you know, get, um, are, are, are highly in demand, um, and get compensated really generously. Yeah. I mean, I definitely know it like when I, I, I grew up in the nineties and the, you know, 2000 to 2010, and I certainly had no notion at the time of, of software engineer being, you know, a high paying job or, you yeah, know, like a good either. job. 
Um, and even when I like got into the industry at first, I didn't realize that like it was a really good, a good place to be. It was just like, it was something that I was really passionate about. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, we, we just, I guess we just take it for granted these days, but that's, it's not always been that way. Um, yeah. That's like, it's, 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 it's interesting to have heard Otto earlier say that, you know, back in the day that your dad didn't want you to be a computer programmer, because of course, like it was, that wasn't even a, a it was not even just that it was not a job that people thought was high paid. It was not, not even something that people thought was a job. Yeah. You couldn't even take it at university as a subject. You had to yeah. take math. Regarding the, uh, the amount of pay that the system, uh, system programmers get, it, it can be tracked to the reliance that industry has on computers. In my days, the, uh, the, the use of computers was not considered a critical uh, element within a, a, a corporation operation. It, was, it became essential, but its growth was uh, gradual. And as the growth became more and more, and the dependence on computers became more and more, I think the salaries of the supporting personnel, technology, technical personnel grew as well. And it really grew as the dependence on computers grew. Uh, in today's world, people can't envision what would happen if there was no computers. And in my time, it was considered a, a, uh, an overhead expense. And it was not considered that essential. Uh, that's in the early days, okay? Uh, but it, it grew uh, as the dependence on it grew, and so did the salaries grow. Well, I remember you telling me in the early days, companies would buy these enormous computers and have them in display rooms so that people could see them um, uh, just to impress like investors and, and clients and such. And, you know, they wouldn't even like be using them to do anything. They just have just like a, a, blinking lights and the, the whirling tapes and everything like that. And you know, ooh, to, ah, to, that, yeah. to that point. Uh, one of my first accounts when I worked for Univac with a Japanese import-export company called Mitsui. They were located on, on Fifth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, I was the account rep on it, the technician to help install the product. And uh, they had a ground floor operation where their computer site, like so many others, were glass enclosed and a raised platform, drop ceiling. Uh, a, it occupied half the floor, the bottom floor. The other half was on the other side of the aisle. Both was glass enclosed. It was all accountants with abacuses. And uh, the first tour I got from uh, this gentleman, who was my counterpart, we walked down this aisle. On the left was this beautiful computer installation we just installed. And on the right was this glass enclosed accounting room with at least 50 to 75 accountants using the practices. And I asked them, I says, uh, what exactly are these guys doing? He says, every piece of output that comes out of this side, he points to the computer, is checked by this side. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I wish I had a camera. Take a picture of that because it represents the entire spectrum of accounting today. You know? wow. That is uh, that was that was the story, and it was interesting. That's hilarious. We're gonna have to find a link to uh, some sort of article 
detailing. Uh, oh, you're going to have a lot of research to do for show notes. There's like at least <laughs> 10 things that I counted that you're going to have to link to. You're yeah, like, clearly. you're going to have to go and find that news story about the XYZ stock from the sixties. Yeah. It definitely exists. <laughs> I would it's love to, I would love to find that. Yeah. It's got to be on the way back machine at some point or <laughs> not the way back machine. The internet nope, not does not exist. Yeah. I was just yeah. actually thinking that I was like, you might have to go look at like microfiche or something. Yeah. yeah. Just to warn you guys, uh, there are other articles. Okay. We, there were many mistakes made on the, t- on the ticker. It was not by my computer, by the way, not by my program, <laughs> but this is false transactions that came out that they, they took exception to that caused a lot of excitement. So was, there was many of this type of situation, not as bad as mine, but there were many mistakes made on the ticker that were corrected almost immediately on the ticker. So that I'm sure got some uh, some press as well. Yeah. Would we be looking at like Washington, um, the, uh, um, uh, uh, the journal? Is that it? The Wall Street Journal? Is, is that what Wall Street Journal, if you go back and, and track it, you should, you should find it. There. <laughs> they would be the ones who would blow it up the best. And when, when, but, uh, when was that? That was, uh, what year was that, you think? Uh, okay, let's see. That was uh, somewhere between 67 and 70. It's late late 60s. Uh, I would think it was after we had the uh, machine installed and running, so I, I would think it's 1969 would be my guess. But there was hell to think on that one, I'll tell you. <laughs> If I if I find uh, the exact uh, some sort of, do you think it was your name in the paper when the story came out or no? No, no okay. They basically said it was a computer error. The word bug actually actually was it actually used. I don't know if they said bug. It was could be a a mistake in the code. I mean, whatever they say at that time. I, I don't. Know. I when that actually entered the lexicon. I, I believe I that think... bug was coined uh, World War Two or post World War Two. Yeah, Grace uh, Hopper, the Mark One, yeah. right? The um, yeah, yeah the, the moth that got stuck in the electromechanical relay. Is that yeah. a true story? I've heard, I've heard it's that a true story, story, and then some people say that that's a story that is made up. Um, is it true? Is it not? You could go to a museum and see the actual moth, the first bug. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I think it's at the Computer History Museum, and uh, it's it certainly, certainly at the very least, it's from that era. That the terms from that era. I have a good, episodes. I have a good last question yeah. um, uh, to finish on. So you mentioned too, Otto, that uh, it was not just Eric that ended up, or maybe Eric, you were mentioning that it was you had a sister. Someone mentioned another, another offspring that yes. also ended yeah, up. My, in- my daughter and yes. Eric's sister. Yeah, and do we want to? Do we? I'm not sure if it's a dangerous question to ask who turned, uh, yeah. who turned out better. Uh, you know, you bought the computer. You had two kids. Uh, one, <laughs> one Better is a relative kids. term. <laughs> <laughs> better uh, is a relative term. Uh, uh, expert politician answered from a clearly experienced parent. <laughs> we, we do very different things in in computers. Um, uh, Christine is is mostly. Um, um, she does a lot of uh, administration and and troubleshooting, that sort of thing. Okay, so not on the not on the code writing side. No, she's never gotten into writing code. I've encouraged her to, but um, but she she doesn't seem to be all that interested in it. Did she ever play around with the uh, the computer that you were you know doing? Uh, what is it? What was it called? The 
That was the XT, IBM XT. The IBM XT. Did she mess around with it as a kid? Or no, was she it messed around with playing the games like Eric did. Uh, Pong was a big one for her. And what was the other one? Uh, oh, a couple of very basic uh, games at that time. Interesting. I don't, actually, I don't actually have recollection of my sister uh, in front of the uh, the PC playing games. Not like you. Not like yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, maybe in some uh, at the five year anniversary or something, we'll we'll do. Uh, you know, we, we're got to we're gonna have to put together some sort of bingo board. We've just checked off the father son podcast. We'll have to get the uh, the brother sister podcast at some point. Someone actually, here we go. Listener out there, if you're interested in making us a bingo board, uh, we will we will be taking submissions, and at some point we will we'll choose a bingo board and we'll make our way through them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this has been an absolute blast for me. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I think this a ton of our listeners are going to have, or the listener will have a fantastic time. Yeah, I I these kinds of stories are just it makes my mind sort of bend. Um, you know, I've, I've Every once in a while, you listen to CPP cast, you hear Jason talk about his, you know, uh, PDP eight or whatever assembly that, you know, but like, this is even going back, this is going back literally to before, I think the first year that people like, what's the earliest language? Is it Fortran? And like, I think that language is credited with like, is it 1955 or 1957? So to go back all the way to the beginning of that is it's super, super interesting to hear sort of what it was like back then. Because it's it's so unfathomable, you know. My first computer was, you know, in elementary school, and we were already doing graphs and Excel, and like we were word processing, and it was it was already pretty pretty good situation. There was definitely no punch cards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, um, I'm sure there's some folks out that listen to that have similar sort of whether they're Wall Street stories or other stories um, back in the day. Yeah, a million a million dollars xyz um <laughs> am i glad that i only write like backend code and uh, a bug for me is just like some manifestation and some python code or something like that uh yeah. i definitely don't have newspaper articles being written <laughs> <laughs> i i was um i i was the person that like filed the bug on Libstud C++ um, for them to make the ABI breaking change to std list in C++ 11, the one where they made it for one release and then like very rapidly put out another point release to un-ABI break it. That's like the closest I've, I've come to doing real hard. Infamy, yes. <laughs> well, this has been an absolute blast. Yeah, this, was, this uh, is really fun. So much fun. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day.